Alright, so we're in Genesis chapter 33, and what we're going to do in this message tonight, we're going to basically go through the chapter, uh, lay out the facts of what we see here, uh, learn a few things from it, but then I want to take a principle from this chapter and then just preach. Alright, so that's kind of the, the plan there, so don't get excited when I get done with the chapter facts, alright, because we're going to go through the chapter, and then I'm going to preach, alright, so, in but in chapter 32... Uh, remember, this that chapter ended with Jacob running from Laban, but kind of heading right for Esau. And this is right after his wrestling match that he had with Jesus. And Jacob has just been blessed, and his name has been changed to Israel. And I believe that uh, this may have played a part, uh, this is my opinion, in the pleasant reunion that took place between Jacob and Esau. Because you know he's kind of had this interaction with the Lord. The Lord has blessed him. And one of the things that we see in the Bible is when it comes to nations especially, and Jacob represents a nation, Esau represents a nation, that the Lord is the one that kind of moves the hearts of kings. We see that principle throughout the Bible. And the Bible says in Proverbs 16, 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with them. So it's very possible that this meeting that Jacob was expecting to be really bad, and rightfully so, because Jacob had cheated Esau big time. Esau had wanted to kill Jacob. Esau had 20 years to stew about this thing. But we're going to see a very pleasant reunion that takes place here. And I think the Lord may have had a hand in that personally. The Bible doesn't say for sure. It's just kind of what I think. But let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1. It says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came and with him 400 men, and he divided the children unto Leah, and unto Rachel, and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over before them, and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now this right here had to have had a severe emotional impact on Jacob's kids when he puts the handmaids and their children in the front. Now, why is he doing that? Well, if Esau attacks, and remember we see that plan before in the previous chapter, if he attacks, he's going to get you know the handmaids and those kids before he gets to Leah and her kids, and then he's got to go through Leah and her kids to get to Rachel and Joseph. So... Uh, you know, because they, they had it set up, so if they get attacked, they can all kind of spread out, and then hopefully some will survive. Okay? Now, this very well could have played into some of the hatred that Joseph's brothers had for him. Now, we do know that, you know, Jacob, it was because Jacob uh, loved Joseph more than his brothers. We know that when he made that coat of many colors, it made those brothers jealous. But I personally believe, too, that they all remember the time. Hey, remember the time Dad thought we were going to all get killed and he put us in the front and put Joseph in the back? Hey, some of the things you do as parents can have severe emotional impacts on your children. And this was probably one of those defining moments for them. And I think probably one of the reasons we see a very dysfunctional family. And again, it all goes back to multiple wives. Okay? And that's why when people want to use Bible characters as excuse for things like multiple wives, like, have you ever read these stories? These stories should be warnings not to do that. You know, these do not make for functional families. These do not make for happy homes. And so at least Jacob, though, in the story, you know, he did have, you know, the guts and he did one right thing, and he went in the very front. Now, that's one good thing that he did. He made sure... You know, Esau saw him first, and so he would be the first one that would go. And so that's a good thing. And, but then when he goes and he sees Esau, you know, scared to death, thinking, all right, it's probably going to be a fight. He's going to try to kill me. But he doesn't, he's not planning for defense. He's not planning to fight back. And I think that's good because, you know, he shouldn't have been going after Esau. Jacob was the transgressor. Jacob was the bad one uh, that ripped off Esau. But it says... And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. So it ends up being a good, pleasant reunion. This is uh, probably what Jacob was hoping for. And that's what he got. It says, and he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children and said, who are those with thee? And he said, the children which God hath graciously given thy servant. Remember that Jacob, he went away with nothing. He went away by himself. And now here he is 20 years later. And he's got, uh, you know, four wives and 11 sons and a daughter 
and a whole bunch of servants and a whole bunch of cattle. I mean, he's coming back loaded. I mean, he did really well in these last 20 years. And so Jacob, when he greets Esau, I know he bows before him, and he is, he's greeting Esau in a very humble way. He said, um, and you know, he said, these are the children of God have graciously given thy servant. So he's still, he's being very humble with Esau. And I think some of it, uh, you know, what may have also affected Esau, we remember in the previous chapter, he had sent that offering ahead, and maybe Esau took it as an apology and not as an act of survival. And that's another interesting thing, too. We kind of preach a message about this. But, you know, it's amazing how we often judge things. We usually judge things the way we are in our own hearts. And so this offering that Jacob sends ahead to Esau, if Esau was a really rotten person, he could have said, he's just doing that so I won't kill him. He's not really sorry. But you know what? He took it as an apology. You know, he, he took it in a good way. Hey, people who take things the bad way all the time are bad people. They have wicked hearts. The ones that are always, you know, acting like you've got these ulterior motives that you're, you're just scheming something. You know why they think that way? Because that's what they would do. Most of us, we would have, that thought would never even cross our mind. But wicked people, that's all that's in their head. And they're constantly projecting their thoughts on you. And let me tell you, it's no fun, you know, getting punished for somebody else's wicked imagination. And that's, that's what people do, though. Because they're, they're just bad people. And therefore, everybody's bad. You know? And if you're, your eye be dark, then your whole body is full of darkness. That's how they see everything. So Esau, I, mean, I think what we're seeing in this chapter too, I think it shows Esau had a pretty good heart. We often think of Esau as a really wicked person. And I think a lot of that too has to do with the fact that Edom and the Edomites were an extremely wicked people. They were, they are the people upon whom the Lord hath indignation forever. But I personally don't think that Esau was that way. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. But in verse 6 it says, Then the handmaidens came near, they and their children, and they bowed themselves. And Leah also with her children came near and bowed themselves. And after came Joseph near and Rachel, and they bowed themselves. And he said, What meanest thou by all this drove which I met? And he said, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. That's that offering that he had sent ahead. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. And so it appears that while Jacob probably had a lot more than Esau, it does appear that Esau was blessed too. He sees this great drove, and he's not like a you know a, a greedy, selfish person who's just hungry for stuff and thinking, all right, I got something here. You know, he tells Jacob he didn't even know what it was there for, and then he tells Jacob, I have enough. I'm good. Sounds like Esau was blessed, doesn't it? Sounds like things were pretty good for Esau. But Jacob wanted to give this to Esau because this wasn't just for survival. I do think he was truly sorry, I think, for, for what he had done. I think he did love his brother, and he wanted him to have this, and so he urged him, and so Esau, he accepts this gift. You know, because Jacob says, I have enough too. Hey, I, I've got plenty. There's plenty to go around. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's important to understand this, though, that it does seem that Esau has a very good heart here. It seems like Esau is blessed by God. And I, I think it's important to understand that because of it helps us to understand the famous Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And go ahead and turn over to Rome, or Malachi chapter 1 and Romans 9 because the Calvinists love to go to Romans 9 and they love to uh, ignore the context. They love to ignore the beginning of the chapter where it makes it crystal clear God is refer- talking about people. God raised up a physical people that were the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. Those are called Jews, the people of the flesh. Uh, Paul compared them to Esau. But then there was Jacob that God loved. There was Jacob that God loved. He was one God raised up. They were spiritual people. That's who we are, both of Jews and Gentiles. That's what Romans 9 is all about. And so... 
in Malachi 1, 2, because Paul quotes this, he says, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau. Okay? So it looks like he's talking about Jacob and Esau, the individual here. But look what it says. It says, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build and I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see and you shall say the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. So notice this stuff that is referred to here was all stuff that happened after Esau was long gone and dead. Okay? During Esau's time, he was blessed, he did good, but his people did very badly. Now, why were the Edomites a cursed people? It wasn't because of anything that Esau did to Jacob. It was because of what the Edomites did when the children of Israel came out of Egypt. That was one of the things they did when they wouldn't let them go through their land and they persecuted them. They beat them while they were down. That right there kind of sealed their fate. And then also when they were taken captive in Babylon, they were rejoicing at the destruction of Israel. They were, they were, they were taking joy and comfort in seeing their brothers taken over and killed and taken into captivity. And that made God very angry. That was the Edomites that did that. Okay? That was not Esau that did that. That was the Edomites. And so God got mad at them, just like many times God, you know, we see in the Bible where God's mad at Israel. But Jacob's dead. Okay? The man Israel is dead. So um, I just show you all this to just show that no matter how hard the Calvinists try to spin it, okay, I do believe that uh, you know Romans 9 is clear that it's talking about a people group and not individuals. Don't ever let a Calvinist go to Romans 9 and then tell you that there's some individual that God chose to hate and chose not to save. Oh, there's a people out there, the people who are of the flesh. But Romans 11 also makes it clear, Romans 9, 10, 11 makes it clear that even if you're the people of the flesh, you can still be saved. If you'll abide, if you'll, and so all Israel shall be saved if they abide not still in unbelief. So don't ever let the Calvinists do that. And you can see from Genesis 33 that, I mean, it does seem, it, the Bible doesn't tell us that Esau was saved, but at the same time, too, I think we see a good man here. He seems like he got a good heart. Obviously, he wasn't as good as Jacob. Obviously, God loved Jacob more than he loved Esau. In other words, God favored Esau, or Jacob over Esau. God blessed Jacob over Esau. Just like, you know, Jacob, you know, he loved Rachel and kind of hated Leah. But I don't think Rachel or Jacob hated Leah, but he did love Leah less than he loved Rachel. And so we see that a lot in the Bible, too. So uh, all that's important just because in case a Calvinist tries to mess with you in Romans chapter 9. Okay? And anytime we get a chance to take a jab at the Calvinist, we're going to do that. Okay? And because uh, we don't like it. But anyway, uh, so when it comes to the nations, though, God did not love the Edomites as a people. God did not. They were people upon whom the Lord had indignation forever. And so verse 12, and he said, Let us take our journey and let us go, and I will go before thee. And he said unto him, My Lord knoweth that the children are tender, and the flocks and herds are with young are with me. If men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly according as the cattle that goeth before me and the children are able to endure until I come unto my Lord unto Seir. And Esau said, Let me now leave with thee some of the folk that are with me. And he said, What needeth it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. So we're seeing these guys, they're both falling all over themselves trying to help each other. They're both having a great attitude. This is a great reunion. This is a great example of brothers who had, you know, done each other wrong. I mean, one did one wrong, but the other one wanted to kill the other one. You know, making up, getting things right. So this is this is a great story. You know, that that you know, when it comes to their relationship, we kind of have a happy ending here, and here they are. They finally get to meet each other, and they're just looking for an opportunity to just do something good for the other one. You know. Jacob's just pretty much forcing all these gifts on Esau. He wants to help him. Esau's pretty much trying to force help on Jacob. 
just because they just they just want to help each other. Have you ever had that person want to help you so much it was annoying? It's like I can't handle your help, you know. And that's kind of what they're doing. Esau's like, now I I really want you to get in the land. I want you to come. But Jacob's like, no, you know, we we can't move too fast. You know, my, my family wouldn't be able to handle it. The animals wouldn't be able to handle. It. We'll talk about that a little more in a little bit. And he says, but you know, these I think Esau was just really anxious to help. He was glad to see him. This is good. So in verse 17, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built him a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram and pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of a field where he had, to, had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. And so in this next chapter, we're going to see how things ended up going south. So again, we've been seeing throughout the book of Genesis, the Bible's taking the time to show all the different places where they dwell, where, where the people of Israel from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where they dwell, where they sojourn, because this was more than just Jacob dwelling there, or even Jacob and his wives and kids. This is a large group of people. You know, this uh, this is a this is a nation here that we're seeing because there's hundreds of servants, you know, thousands of animals and things. So this is a pretty big deal. And in the in the next chapter, things ended up going bad because of the fact that um, these people were immoral. We're going to see where uh, you know Shechem he defiled Dinah, and then we see where Jacob's sons were very cruel in what they did to them, and it caused them a lot of problems. And made it so they kind of had to move on. So remember, the context of everything we're seeing here is we are. This is Israel's history. God is showing us how they became a people, and so all these details are very important. And it especially would have been important for them uh, during that day. And so, uh, what I want to do though in the rest of this message, though, I want to point something out in here that's very important. And I've, I've actually been wanting to preach on this for quite a while, and this was just a great opportunity. I wanted to use this passage too, and so I thought, well, now's the time to really preach this. So this is kind of where we're going to preach the message now. All right, we covered Genesis 33. You know, now I want to preach to you, but go back and look at verse um, 15, and it says, or no, I'm sorry, uh, verse. 12 says, and he said, let us take our journey and let us go, and I will go before thee. Okay, Esau is really anxious for Jacob to get to where he's going. They're looking forward to, uh, you know, kind of being, you know, neighbors and being close to each other again. You know, Esau is really anxious for this to happen, and obviously Jacob has a desire to get there. Okay, this is what he wants, but the timing is not really right yet. And he said unto him, my Lord knoweth that the children are tender. And the flocks and the herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. So Jacob had a desire to get to a place. It's a good desire, right? He wants a good thing. But Jacob is aware of the fact that, wait a minute, this kind of a journey is very difficult on the children. It's difficult on the animals. I've got to keep that in mind. Okay, now Esau and his men, they're ready to go. You know, and I'm sure Jacob, you know, we know he was a good man. You know, he, you know, won a wrestling match with Jesus. Of course, now he walks with a limp, you know, but at the same time, I think Jacob could have handled it. He used a stone for a pillow. You know, that's the kind of guy that Jacob was. Everybody talks about him like he was the, the mama's boy. I personally think he was a tough guy. But Jacob, while he could have handled it, while Jacob was probably pretty anxious to get there, he's thinking, you know what? I'm in charge of this multitude of animals. I've got all this family. I've got all these servants. I can't do what I want to do in the way that I could do it because if I do that, it's going to hurt them. I could kill them. And so notice what he says. He says, Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly, according as the cattle that goeth before me, and the children are able to endure until I come unto my Lord, unto Seir. And so right there, notice that phrase, I will lead on softly. And that's where we get the title of this message, I will lead on softly. Okay? One thing that we like to talk about, okay, 
And, you know, we're new IF beers, all right? We like to be hardcore on everything. We like to pound our chest, and, you know, we like everything hard, and, you know, we, we don't even eat soft eggs, right? We only eat them hard because that's just how we are. And, you know, and, we're, and as leaders, we believe in strong leadership. The husband is the head of the house. We are the authority. The wives are in submission. We beat our kids. You know, we don't, we don't, I mean, we're just hardcore on everything, right? But you know what? There is a time to lead on softly. You know, it's not all about just being hard. It's not all about just being right. And, and men, it's not all about you just knowing what you want to do and being leader of the home. If you are actually a leader, you have got to understand that you you need to be aware of what uh, of what those you are leading are capable of doing. Okay, because remember, the wife is the weaker vessel. You're, she can't handle everything you can handle. Your children can't handle everything you can handle. And this applies in all leadership, okay? Even when it comes to pastoring a church. You know, as a pastor, it's real easy for us, you know, to go to a, a pastor's conference or a pastor's school and we get all these great ideas and think, man, I'm going to go do this stuff in my church. One of the things that people used to talk about all the time, they used to go to, you know, pastor school in First Baptist in Hammond, and one of the mistakes they'd all make is everybody would come back from First Baptist you know, pastor school, and then they would all try to run their church like First Baptist in Hammond. And their churches weren't ready for it. And pastors were always going there and learning, and they'd see the strong leadership there. They'd see all, they'd hear all these great ideas, and then they come running home, and you know what they do? They overdrive their churches, and then they crash and burn. And it was one of those things, you know, just, you know, they, they got a little overzealous. You know, they got excited, and you know, they didn't see, and I, you know, I, that in, and from what I've heard, you know, I was never a part of that ministry, but, you know, from what I've heard about Jack Hiles is in many ways he was a soft leader. You know, and he, he did understand that kind of thing. And he didn't get there, you know, by being a maniac. Right? You, that, you know, that, that never happens. But people often get the wrong idea. And one of the things that happens, I'm afraid, and it happens a lot in this movement, people hear the hard preaching and the strong preaching on leadership. And they hear the hard preaching... You know, on husbands being the head of the home. And I'm all for that stuff. I believe in that. But here's what people often forget is that, you know, not everybody, okay, in fact, I'm the only one that's in here that's married to Cassandra. Okay? Not all women are like my wife. Okay? There, there's areas, you know, where, you know, my wife in many ways is as tough as nails, I think. But, you know, not all women are like that. You know, some women, you know, they, they can't handle as much. Some are more emotional. And if that's your wife, you know what? That's what you have to work with. You know, it, it, there's not, nothing wrong with her. Okay? If she's emotional, if she gets hurt easier, if she's not able to handle as much, that doesn't mean, you know, man, I should pick a bad wife. I want to go in the ministry. No. That's not, you don't pick a wife just, you know, the, for a pastor. You're not, you're not supposed to be looking for a pastor's wife. Hey, single guys that want to be a pastor someday, go, don't go looking for a pastor's wife. Don't go out there getting a qualifier so she can bear your qualifiers. So you can have your two children and then, boom, qualified. That's not why you do that kind of thing. You know what you're going to do? You're going to overdrive your wife. You're going to go and you're going to get married and you're going to make her have two kids in 18 months and you're going to overdrive her. And that's not good. That's not good leadership. That's not okay. And too many leaders today, you know, we're, they're running their people they're leading into the ground. And that's not a good thing. One thing you need to do, you need to be aware of the limits of those you are leaving. They're leading. It, Jacob, he's been paying attention. He's been working with these animals for 20 years. He knows how to tell when they're tired. Even though they can't verbally communicate, he can tell. He's aware of the flock that he's leading. He's able to see what's going on, and he knows what they can handle. And you know what? A good pastor ought to be able to tell when he's overdriving his church. He ought to be able to tell when you know what? I'm probably pushing the people a little too hard right now. Well, what if some guys just, oh, we're just going to push them harder. They just need to tough it up. No, you know what you need to do? You need to lead on softly right now. You know, there's times in churches where there's battles and things that go on and people are hurting. That's not the time to crack the whip. That's the time to lead on softly. You got to be aware of these things. You got. I mean, I'm telling you, guys that are wanting to pastor someday, you better pay attention to this. You better learn when to lead on softly. And a lot of times we do. We like to hear. You know, we listen to that guy pounding his chest and yelling and screaming about strong leadership. 
But you know that there's a time for that, but it's not all the time. And you've got to learn to be able to tell the difference because, you know, what good are you going to do as a shepherd if you're killing your flock? That's not what that's not what a good shepherd does. And so you need to bear, be aware of the limits of those you're leading. You need to, to be able to tell when your life's you know, at her limit. And you need to be able to tell when you're pushing your kids too far and when you're asking too much of them. And you've got to be aware of these things. Many husbands forget their wives are the weaker vessel. The Bible says we're supposed to give honor unto the wives as unto the weaker vessel. We're going to go to that passage here in a little bit. And many parents, they don't understand where their children are at in, in their development. I see, I see this too sometimes. Where it's like, you know, you hear that message on spanking. Right? We believe in spanking. But it's amazing how many parents, it, it, you know, they're almost, they're, they're like robots. It's like they have no nurturing instinct. They have no parental instincts at all. And their kids are crying. And, you know, they'll have a two-month-old crying and they want to spank him. How do you tell a two-month-old to stop crying? Especially by spanking it. You know, and they're spanking. That's they're, all they know how to do. They have no ability. It's like even some of these moms, no nurturing instinct to be able to see, hey, the baby needs his diaper change. The baby needs to be fed. The baby needs, you know, just needs some attention. They don't know how to tell you that because all they've heard a message on is spanking. And then they just spank and they just beat the fire out of these kids. And it's just like, hey, I, I get it. We're supposed to spank them sometime, but not all the time. That's not all there is to raising kids. Now, we hear a lot of preaching on that. Because society today has told us not to do that. And so what do we, you know, they've swung the pendulum too far the other way. So we come along and want to swing the pendulum too far the other direction too. And then that's all we do. And you can't do that. You've got to learn how to just, and, and I'm telling you, it's, everybody wants me to give them magical formula. All right, what transgressions do you spank them for? And what, you know, how, how hard do I spank? You know, what am I allowed to spank with? How many spank, you know. I, don't make me write out a list of, you know, a book on that kind of thing. I don't know. You know, follow your instincts. You know, I mean, bears spank their cubs. Go ask them how hard they spank them. Go ask how many times. Go ask them how old. You know, when they start and when they quit. You know, they just know when to do it. It's just in, it's in nature. Okay? It's a, we, we know, we naturally know when to do these things. But with some people, you gotta write it down. With some people, you gotta you know they gotta listen to a sermon, and we need to preach sermons on this stuff because people have been brainwashed, you know, by the world telling you not to do these things. But I'm telling you, you know what? In, in the past, they never had to do that because people instinctively knew what to do. It was in their instincts, and I just I, I, I'm amazed at this. And it's like, and, I, and I've never seen this here, and I don't ever want to see this here. But I've been there before. I've been to church before. Where, I mean, I, I see these parents, and it's like they're trying to impress everyone with how strict they are with their kids. You know what? I, I'm not impressed by that at all. Okay, when I if I see you blowing your top on your kids in the church, I'm not saying you can't ever spank your kids in this church. But you know what? Hey, can you try to keep that stuff private the best you can? You know, can, you know, training is to be done at home. This is a testing ground. That's the way I look at it. This is the testing ground. This is where you go. This is where you come to find out if your training at home is working. And I, listen, there's a time to spank in church, okay? I used to get spanked in church all the time. I, I still remember it. Okay? That's why when I talk about getting spanked with a brush, okay, that was always at church. You know, I, I see a lot of people these days are always packing. They got the wooden spoons and stuff. Uh, but, you know, you know, my mom didn't do that. She had a brush because that was in her purse. She didn't have, our paddle was too big to fit in her purse. And, you know, I, I still get, I, and she still has that same brush and I still cringe every time I see it. And I, I, re I really do. But at, at the same time, you know, don't put on a show here with you spanking your kids. Because some people take it too far. And uh, I, I think that's bad. I think it's revolting. And when I see people doing that, I see a person with no instincts, was, I see a robot that's just trying to impress everybody. They heard, you know, beat your kids, spank your kids, and then, you know, kid cries, and they just start beating their kid. And it's like, well, you know, your kid fell and cracked his head on the corner of the brick wall. You know, I mean, it's gonna, they're going to cry a little bit. You know, and, but it's a sad thing. They, and you, you've got to understand that. 
as parents. And you know, many pastors, they don't understand where their people are spiritually in their growth many times. And you all need to understand that too. When we're getting new people in the church, when we're, as people get saved, not everybody is going to be where you are tomorrow in their spiritual development. Not everyone is going to just come walking into this church and be where you are doctrinally. And, you know, and people, they, they do that. Somebody comes into church and they want to start grilling them on doctrine to make sure they're not an infiltrator. Hey, maybe it's a babe in Christ. You know, give them some time. And don't just go... How many of you were ready six months after you got saved or even a year or two after you got saved to just, I mean, get grilled on doctrine? And I, I wouldn't want to be a new Christian going into some of these churches knowing I'm just going to get grilled and everybody's going to be questioning my salvation and... I mean, I mean, how many of you, even for a while after you got saved, were like ready to just tell everyone your testimony and how, we're just ready to give the gospel? You realize most of us in here, you know, we were taught how to give the gospel, even though we were already saved. And you got a lot of people, they've never been taught how to go sowing. They've never been taught how to communicate that stuff. And you come and you're asking them all these trick questions. And, you know, you're, you're, you're checking up on their eternal security. You think if you got, you know, do you think if a person gets saved and they fly into the World Trade Center in an airplane saying Allahu Akbar that they still go to heaven? You know, don't ask questions like that. What if you stop believing? You know, don't don't ask questions like that. And if, and if they answer them wrong, they're not an infiltrator. They need to grow. And it's just people today, they just have just no clue. A bunch of robots is all they are. You know, they learn something from. You know, from a sermon, watching a sermon, watching a video on the internet, and then they're just ready to just condemn everybody that doesn't agree with them on that. It's like, why in the world would we even think that they would be ready to answer that kind of thing? And it's just amazing what we expect from lost people, even from saved people. You know, that's the other thing, too. You know, everybody wants to condemn people and reprobate everybody if they're just defensive of homos. What do you expect from a lost person? You realize the brainwashing that's going on in the schools and the news media and on the, all the television shows? Hey, do you realize how crazy they're making us look? And then you're going to go and tell a nice person who hasn't learned the truth of the reprobate doctrine, you're going to go accusing them of being a queer and reprobate and stuff like that? They're going to think, they're going to think something's wrong with you. Hey, you it, it, we have gotten so self-centered okay, in our culture today, in our society... We are just incapable of understanding where anyone else is at. And what are we doing? We're turning people away many times. We're running people in the ground. We're destroying our own families, destroying our own churches, because we are complete. All, all we can see is ourselves. Jacob, I'm sure he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to go, Esau. Let's do this. But wait, Jacob has a wife. Wives. Jacob has children. Jacob's got animals. He's got to think about these things. And that's something, too, a lot of single, many times single people don't understand. We've had single women that come through here. They don't understand when married women with children can't just drop everything and just hang out and go shopping and do whatever. Hey, no, listen, you know, every woman wants to go shopping and all that stuff, but she's always got to think about her starving husband at home. She's always got to think about, you know, what's going to happen to the house, you know, while she's gone, if she goes and does these things. She's got to think about all that stuff. That's constantly on her mind, but many people they don't think about that at all. And many husbands are like that too. You know, they're just ready to just drop everything. You know, they've got you know they've got a wife. She's got you know four kids under the age of three, and they're just ready to drop everything to go to that soul winning marathon. And then the wife complains about it. It's like you know, you just don't like spiritual things. <laughs> you know, you're, you're trying. My wife doesn't want me to go soul winning. I got a really crummy wife. No, you're a really crummy husband. You're a really crummy leader. You're, you're overdriving your wife, and you're, you're destroying things. You've got a wife and kids you need to be thinking about. You don't get to just drop everything and go on mission trips and do all that, do all that stuff. You're not capable of that. You, see, you've got to learn to love those that you are leading more than you love yourself. Look what it says in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. This is a great passage here. says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. You know, those sheep aren't just there to make him money. Those sheep aren't just there to give him what he wants. Okay? Even though 
if you're a shepherd, what are those sheep there for? I mean, they you know they provide wool and you know meat and all that kind of stuff. But you know what he's saying here: the uh, one who actually cares about his sheep, he's going to give his life on. He's going to take care of those. Why? Because they are in his charge. They are in his care. So he's got to look out for them. But he that is in a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf cometh coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine as the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. That hireling, he's not thinking about the sheep, he's thinking about himself. So trouble comes, you know what he does? He bails. And, that, and we see pastors doing that in here in town all the time. They can't stay in a church for two years. You know why? Because problems come and the hireling flees. He can't handle it. He doesn't stick around. And then you've got the other ones that are basically leading their people into danger. They are overdriving them. They're strong. And you know why they do that? You know why a lot of pastors do that? Because they don't know the sheep. Jesus said, I know my sheep. Hey, I know. And as a pastor, I ought to know what our church is capable of. I ought to know. I ought to be somewhat aware of what's going on in the church and how and where things are at spiritually and where people are at. And so I'm not just you know steamrolling over everybody in the church. That's not what we want. We don't want to have a church where we just get a few hardcore people together to do what needs to be done and we're just steamrolling people all the time. We're supposed to be, you know, helping people. We're supposed to be a good shepherd is one that's going to go and actually leave the ninety and nine and go after the one that's gone astray. Because we see all of them as valuable. That needs to be the attitude we have. And all of us as a church, we need to be looking out for each other. We need to be looking out for the other sheep in the church. We need to be looking out for those who just aren't ready yet. You know, you ought to be, you ought to be sensitive to these things. When I'm up here and I'm preaching a really hardcore message, you know, it's okay if you're a little concerned about that new person in the church that might not quite be ready for that doctrine yet. Wow, that probably shook them up a little bit. You know what? That's your opportunity to go, hey, what do you think about that message? They might be more likely to tell you than me. Yeah, you know, the first time I heard that, man, that freaked me out. You know, the first time I heard that, I thought, man, this pastor's crazy. But you know, I got to study in it. You know, you know what you're doing? You're looking out for him. You're looking out for him because you realize, hey, this kind of message might be too much for somebody. And you're, and, and you're concerned about that. As a pastor, I need to be aware of that too. Now, some, there's been times where I've had messages where it's like, you know, Lord gave me a face ripping message, some you know really hard truths, and we always get visitors on those nights. I'm like, man, you know, and I'll preach it anyway. But you know, at the same time too, I I do try to be careful, you know, about how I present it. I don't want to make people think we're freaks and weirdos, and and I I don't want to because I don't want to like hurt these people. I don't want to blindside them. I'm aware of where these people are coming from. I'm aware of you know I, I've got enough you know discernment. That I understand, hey, this person, there's no reason why they should just be all on board with these things right away. And so we're going to be sensitive to that. And that's something where, you know, you all can help too. We've got to be paying, but we've got to be paying attention to these things. And 1 Peter 3, 5 says, For after this manner in the old time, holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands. And boy, you know, Every husband likes that verse. And I agree with that verse. That's a great verse. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Okay? Single punks love that one. You know, I'm looking for the supermodel ready to have 14 kids, hardcore soldier that's ready to call me Lord. You know, that, that, that's, what, that's what everybody wants. Okay? You know, even though you're ugly, out of shape, you know, and all, you, you got nothing going for you. But because you have you have declared these super high standards for yourself, therefore making yourself super spiritual, you now expect all these things from your wife, future wife. And it's amazing how many guys love this kind of stuff. Okay, they love this kind of preaching. If I, if I you know, if I preach a message just you know ripping on women or something, I mean, guys eat that stuff up. They love it. You know, they would love it if I just got up here and just you know hammer and you know, and we do hammer the women. To, from time to time, you know, and let them have it and tell them what they need to hear. I mean, I love a good feminism bash as much as anybody. 
But it's amazing how many punks, they, they listen to new IFB preaching, and then, boy, they go, and they're just pounding their chest. They're all ready to go. I mean, they just quit smoking pot a year ago. You know, they just quit smoking pot a year ago. You know, their wife, when their wife married them, they weren't even saved. You know, they had no intention of living this, you know, extreme hardcore lifestyle. But boy, they hear, they heard a message and now, man, we're adopting all that. Honey, call me Lord. Better be in subjection. You're growing your hair down to your feet. You know, you're doing, you're doing, you're, you know, you're wearing, you're wearing only skirts. Listen, understand, okay, I am for dress standards. I am for women looking like women. Okay? I'm 100% for the, I am, I am for submission. But, you've got to understand, if you marry a woman from the world who is not raised that way, you realize this is going to be a big adjustment for her. It, this, that's why it's good if this is how you feel, you know, to figure, you know, to determine these things before you get married and let your wife know what she's getting into. It's a very important thing to do. Let your wife know what she's getting into. You know, that way she can run away before before you get married in case she needs to do it. But you need to you need to let her know these things ahead of time. And it's but it's like a, a lot of these guys, they just expect them to just turn this on right away. And let me tell you something. You know what? Dress standards are easy for us guys, because when it comes to your typical IFB dress standards, guys, we can walk through town and nobody notices anything. But you know what? Women get looked at, don't they? You know it's harder for women to get looked at funny than it is for men? So great. Real easy for you guys declaring standard, dress standards for your family. You better think about your wives. You know, it's real easy for us, but you know, you better think about your teenagers that all of a sudden you just decided, hey, we're throwing out all your wardrobe. You better, you, you need to understand that's a tough thing for them. And it's a super easy thing for you to do, just like it had been real easy for Jacob to, all right, let's go. But you know what? He knew what, he knew what he was leading. He knew what they were capable of, and he led on softly. And you know what, dads? Before you go, just turning your family's world upside down with all this stuff, you better understand what they're capable of, where they're at, and you better take those things into consideration. It's going to be different for everybody in every family. You know, it was easier for my kids because it's all they've known. They grew up with this. You know, we didn't have to go, I didn't have to go through their rooms and start throwing everything out. Okay? I promise. You go in, you know, you just go walk into your 17-year-old daughter's bedroom and just start throwing away all her pants. I promise you're gonna, you know, she's gonna be on a podcast one of these days talking about abuse in the IFB and about her daddy coming through and throwing away all her pants and making her wear these tents called skirts and things like that. You know, she, she's gonna be one of these victims, one of these cult survivors. But I, I'm here today to tell you that, you know, I think these things are all good, but you gotta understand, you are asking something from your family. When it comes to doing these things, it is a challenge. It is a sacrifice. And it's like some people don't understand that. Some people don't. You realize what you're telling, you're telling your wife, what your wife's going to, how's your wife going to explain this to her mother and her sisters that she's close to? You know, when they're like, why are you wearing skirts now? Why are you doing all this? You know, that's going to be a tough thing for her. You know, you've got to take those things into consideration. It's easy for you. Listen, there is nothing in the world that is easier for me than ticking off my in-laws. I enjoy it, okay? But it's a difficult thing for your wife, okay? Because that's her mom. You know, those are, those are her siblings, okay? You know, it's a sport for us. Who's with me on that, all right? We, yeah, man, it's, it's fun. But it's not for them. And you need to understand, if you're asking them to do that, well, it would bring you great pleasure to make your mother-in-law just, you know, Flip her lid, you know, that it's not going to be easy for your wife. And you need to give honor unto her, because look at this. After we see even a Sarah calling him Lord, likewise, then this is what all the punks forget about. Likewise, ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge. Kind of like the good shepherd that knows the sheep. He understands, hey, I know what, I know what this is going to do to my wife. I know what I'm asking her to do. And you need to make sure you get her on board. You don't just go, and well, let me tell you, let me show you First Peter 3, 5, and 6. Hey, First Peter 3, 5, and 6 is in the Bible, and it's right. But you know what? We live in America. You go and you do all that stuff with her, she can say, I'll see you later, bub. And then guess what? Mr. New IFB, I want to be a pastor punk. 
You just got disqualified because your wife left you. You're now divorced. You know, so you better take those things into consideration. And you better, you better think about that. It says, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. So understand, when while you're going to be all ready to go, okay, guys typically, when it comes to the IFB world and the IFB preaching, they like it better than the women do. That's why there's so many single guys in the IFB and few single women. Yeah. Guys like this better. You know why? Because they love hearing. Give them, you know, so why submit your husbands? Call them Lord. All that. But you know what? Nobody wants to talk about. Give honor unto them under the weaker vessel. You know what? I wonder what would happen in the IFB world if husbands, if even pastors with their wife, if they went and started honoring their women. If they started treating them with the respect and an honor and a dignity that the rest of the world's not seeing. I mean, I, I, I wonder what would happen. I think maybe more women would start thinking, you know what, I want to get my husband in this. But you know what? We, we are seeing all the time in the IP world, men overdriving their wives, overdriving their children, and destroying them. This is not what we were meant to do. You need to give honor to the weaker vessel. And so I don't want to hear any man... Talk about a submissive wife who isn't following Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 32. You know what? Listen, if you want to be one of these punks that just go around screaming about women keeping silent in the church, that's your favorite verse in the Bible. And I like it too. Trust me. I like that verse. Okay? Especially when I when women preachers get up and women want to get mad. I, lo- I love that verse. I'm glad we've got that. But you know what? I'm tired of punks that have those verses you know, tattooed on their forehead. But yet they don't know Ephesians 5, 25 through 32, where it says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Boy, who, who put the greater effort into that relationship? Who made the sacrifices in that? Who is that harder on? It was harder on Jesus than it was on us. In fact, it's been real easy on us. He said his yoke is easy and his burdens light. It says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his own wife loveth himself. You know, I'm sick of these guys too, and I've seen these guys in the IFB world. You know, they'll take care of themselves. Well, you know, they'll buy themselves nice clothes and things. They make their wife, you know, wear a burlap sack practically. They make her look like she bought her clothes from Olson's Mercantile because he's got to prove that he's more, you know, that he's more hardcore on dress standards than everybody else. And it's like, again, nobody really cares what guys wear. But they do with women. That matters to them. Let me tell you, if you are spending more on your wardrobe as a man than your wife, you are a bad husband. Hey, you are selfish. You stink. And, oh, I don't know why my wife needs. I don't know why she needs to spend so much time in the bathroom. You know why? Because she's a woman. They care about their appearance, and you ought to be thankful for that. You ought to be glad. You know, and that—that's a good thing. That's okay. You know, you want her to have you know that long, super long hair, but then you don't give her any time to do anything with it. And I know how it is. I have to wait in my car all the time. But we know we have smartphones today. We have games on them that we can play while we're waiting on our wives. And I've gotten pretty good at some games. <laughs> Waiting, you know, waiting on my wife. It says, For we are, but for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church, for we are the members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Let me tell you something. The IFB for a long time, has had a horrible reputation in its treatment of women. And let me tell you, we earned it. We have earned it because we have gotten up and we have spoken truth about the role of women. But there has been an imbalance in how hardcore we are on the role of women versus the role of the man and of the husband. And we have failed in the giving honor and the cherishing and all these other things treating them like a weaker vessel. We were overdriving these women, running them into the ground. I just heard about a pastor's wife that just killed herself. 
You know, and I mean, it's the second one I've heard about in recently. You know, th- something's wrong right there. That, that's not good. That's not the way it ought to be. And, when, and too many people are, and, and, I, and I'm seeing in this movement, they're so focused on like impressing everyone in the movement, impressing their Facebook friends with how hardcore they are, that they're forgetting to use instinct, use common sense, and actually follow the Bible, and actually pay attention to these things, and they're leading hard. That sounds good. But you know what? There is a time to lead softly with your family, because I get it. You're strong, but they're not as strong as you are. And you need to understand, you are responsible for them, and if they flop out and they fall out in the way, it's not their fault, that's your fault. You're a bad leader. And we've got to get this right. Husbands have got to stop just learning this verse about being in control and then just going and then just, you know, running their wives through the ringer, not taking into consideration what they're asking, what they're putting themselves through, and actually giving some time and leading them softly. I mean, Jacob, he went, I mean, he built a place to dwell. They were there for a while. It took a long time. Things got delayed. What he wanted to do was fine. It was good. It was great. It was what he wanted to do. But you know what? If he hadn't done the delay like he needed to do, he would have destroyed his family and what he had. And, you know, too many people are trying to get to a good place. They're trying to get there too fast. And as a result of them trying to keep up with everybody else, they're not getting there at all. And that's not okay. And so I hope that was, I hope, but I hope everybody will take that into consideration. So let's close the word of prayers. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Dear God, I pray you'll help us to learn from this principle that we see in the story. And I pray you'll help us as men, Lord, to be, uh, Lord, strong leaders, but at the same time, help us to know when to lead softly also. Help us to, uh, Lord, to change this uh, reputation that we have in the IFB world and just overdriving women and just and treating them terrible, Lord, and giving them that honor that they deserve, that we are responsible to do, Lord. You have treated us good as your bride. You have done so much for us, and I pray you'll help us to be the same way with our wives. I pray you'll help us as a church to be the same way with new converts and or just visitors, anybody who is new to this. Lord, help us to be understanding where they're at and help us to have a shepherd's heart uh, with these people. In your name we pray, amen. Let's go ahead and stand.